Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Professor Wolf Gruner. He is Professor of History and the Chappelle Guerin Chair in Jewish Studies at University of Southern California. He is also the founding director of the University of Southern California's Dornsife Center for Advanced Genocide Research. Today we will be in dialogue regarding his newly published book, Resisters, How Ordinary Jews Fought Persecution in in Hitler's Germany. Resisters, How Ordinary Jews Fought Persecution in Hitler's Germany, published in New Haven by Yale University Press, 2023. Wolf, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thanks, Ari, for having me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult? Oh, this could fill another podcast. But uh, so I grew up in uh, Germany, to be more precise, in uh, the former communist part of Germany, where I spent kind of my life until I was 28. Um, And I think this shaped a lot of my scholarly perspective uh, and led also to me uh, kind of challenging certain kind of standards in Holocaust history, questioning uh, previous approaches. And um, because I was kind of in a way socialized in questioning uh, what uh, kind of the regime in East Germany was in a way conveying uh, to the population. And um, in the beginning, I was not actually uh, an historian. I was a poet. And uh, I encountered uh, kind of on a day-to-day basis racism in East Germany and tried to find out what, how does this come? What are the reasons for racism? And uh, that's when I started to read books about kind of the Holocaust um, uh, in particular. And uh, everything at the time, this was like in the beginning of the 1980s, um, kind of uh, explained racism in a society with uh, the existence of a state-sponsored ideology. However, in East Germany, this, there was a very big difference or contradiction here because uh, East Germany didn't kind of promote uh, racism as a state, quite the opposite. They claimed that everybody is equal, workers of the world uh, unite. And so um, there was this really gap between kind of state policy and uh, daily life. And that's how I got into history, because when, if the books couldn't tell me, uh, I decided I need to study this on my own. And that's when I started to kind of uh, uh, into undergrad, uh, uh, being an undergrad in history, which kind of was a little bit difficult to get in because I was distant to the regime. And so um, I uh, approached one, the only professor in uh, East Germany who did uh, Holocaust studies and help, asked him to help me 
to kind of achieve my goal to study this history. And so I think long story short, uh, this upbringing, this kind of these personal experiences in a dictatorship really kind of uh, gave me a different sensibility uh, in, when I studied history and the Holocaust in understanding how these kind of regimes work, how people in them uh, in them behave. Um, and uh, this kind of uh, was a guiding kind of uh, line throughout my studies uh, uh, in my career. Thank you. What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? How did you handle these adversities? What aspects of your writing process were most therapeutic for you? How did you grow? And so this was not my first book. Uh, so, uh, but it was, I think, the most exciting writing uh, which I ever did, um, but also the most challenging because it was the first book uh, which I ever wrote in English. All my previous books I have written in German and they were usually translated. And so to write uh, kind of in English was a challenge. I mean, I was in a way used to it because I wrote articles in English, but never kind of a book. And then uh, the second challenge was that I was used to write academic books, but I wanted to uh, uh, kind of bring this topic to a broader public. So I tried to find a way how to uh, kind of go beyond academia in my um, uh, kind of storytelling here. And this is why I resorted to, in a way, uh, combine historical analysis with um, stories. And uh, what I do in the book is um, I tell the life stories of five people who kind of performed resistance, uh, individual acts of resistance. And uh, to how to do this was pretty challenging on the one hand, because I needed to find kind of also the research to to discover their biographies, um, what their life was about, what was not easy to do. And then I thought a lot how I can kind of try to make the public understand why people actually did uh, kind of uh, uh, resist. And as an academic, we are usually resorting to the sources and there is only kind of, uh, you can only go so far as your sources uh, kind of uh, go. But I thought in the beginning, maybe I kind of uh, uh, try to go back to my poetry. And actually uh, at some point I had a manuscript where I had kind of also invented scenes and they are trying to kind of in a way imagine how the, my protagonist felt and um, trying to see how or imagine um, what might have led them to their kind of conclusion to resist. Uh, however, I then uh, for various reasons, uh, I dropped this idea and uh, the publishing house told me my the stories are actually dramatic enough. I don't need kind of these imaginary kind of realizations in a way. Uh, and also, I think uh, it's uh, it, uh, in the end, I'm also pleased with the writing uh, in this way because it is a kind of a much more straightforward uh, storytelling in a way primarily grounded in the in the primary sources. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? So uh, I think what I really wanted do with this book is to reassess uh, 
what Jewish resistance was, because uh, we had this understanding of Jewish resistance. It was only a very rare occurrence. It was mainly in Eastern Europe. Uh, it was usually organized and armed. And with my book, I want to kind of, kind of, in a way, rewire our brains and show that resistance is uh, so much more than organized and group resistance, that uh, a lot of the resistance is actually done uh, by individuals, uh, often on their own, without any help, and that it also exists in a very different uh, kind of spectrum than we expect. And it ranges from, like uh, in my book, for example, from individuals who spoke up, criticized the persecution, Jewish individuals, uh, to physical self-defense. So there is a wide range of individual acts, which we need to have uh, acknowledged. And with the book, I can show that these were not isolated incidents. This was a very widespread occurrence. And I think this, in a way, uh, uh, the message of the book is to get rid of the idea, which is, I think, misconceived, that Jews were passive under the oppression. Uh, so I think this is, uh, there cannot be uh, something farther from the truth. Uh, the problem was, in a way, that for a long time historians thought, uh, as I mentioned already, about resistance in general, just as kind of organized and armed. And this is not only... To, uh, let's say the fault of historians, but also, let's say there is also a strand in kind of Jewish history or uh, kind of also by survivors. It starts doing the war that uh, on, the only forms of resistance which are acknowledged, for example, in the very early accounts on the Holocaust in 1942, 1946, um, are these kind of, of uh, acts of armed resistance, like, for example, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or the fight of the partisans in Eastern Europe. But uh, only a few kind of acknowledged that this is resistance is much uh, broader. There were Israeli historians very much from the very beginning, kind of pointing towards spiritual resistance, cultural resistance, uh, religious, uh, religious resistance. However, this is never uh, really kind of until recently uh, uh, kind of was the mainstream of thinking about resistance. And then there's one big difference uh, regarding my book, uh, while spiritual, religious and cultural resistance was very important in the ghettos in the East, uh, it was very different in Germany because in Germany, the Nazis actually supported the segregation of Jewish culture. So there was a Jewish culture was not really in a way a resistance as it was in the ghettos in, in Eastern Europe. So I think with uh, trying to highlight uh, individual acts of resistance in a way revises our understanding uh, of the place and the attitudes of Jewish men and women uh, in Nazi Germany. Can you summarize your book for us? <laughs> That's really uh, uh, not an easy feat. Uh, so what I do in this book is uh, I tell five stories of five men and women of different ages, uh, from ranging from uh, 17 back then, uh, to 63, uh, and each story uh, describes the act of resistance, uh, 
embedded in the life history of the protagonist. So I uh, kind of show how they grew up, uh, what happened, how what led them to uh, commit these acts of resistance, and then also what happened to them afterwards. Um, what I try to do is to also show with these five stories um, that these are specific types of resistance. So each story stands for one type of resistance, which I kind of, in a way, systematized. So one is um, uh, one type of resistance is uh, the contestation, challenge, uh, and sometimes destruction of Nazi propaganda or anti-Jewish propaganda. So for example, destroying uh, swastikas or ripping down Nazi flags. That's one type of resistance. Another type is um, uh, speaking up in public, like protesting, criticizing Hitler, protesting against anti-Jewish laws, um, and so on. And then uh, the other three are uh, criticism and protest uh, in written form, which ranged from an anonymous leaflets to petitions. The disobedience of uh, anti-Jewish legislation and local restrictions. And then finally, uh, what I called a physical self-defense, where uh, individual Jews kind of defended themselves physically against either verbal insults or physical attacks. And when I tell these five stories or each chapter, I end these chapters with uh, the introduction of other similar stories to uh, make clear that while I pick these stories as either especially spectacular or uh, very insightful, it also they all only show a tip of the iceberg. So in total, my book. Uh, in a way, is based on hundreds and hundreds of stories of individual Jewish um, resistance. And uh, what I try to do is really to also deliver or submit uh, a broader understanding of individual resistance with a new definition, which includes these um, individual acts. What does your book reveal about the workings of the Nazi legal system? So this was a very surprising uh, kind of uh, discovery uh, because previously we thought that uh, over time there was a steady Nazification of all institutions in Hitler's Germany. Uh, this men meant ministries, local governments, but also, let's say, courts and uh, uh, prosecutors' office offices. And what I found in the book is um, that is a much too simplistic understanding. Um, the cases with, uh, which I discovered in my research uh, are often court cases. Uh, and I may kind of take a step back here. Um, how I actually found these cases um, is in a way connected to this problem. When I... Um, uh, looked at, for example, police records in uh, Berlin, I uh, found the first traces of this, uh, of this kind of individual public protest. And then I was interested, can I find out more because these police records were often very 
brief, like half a page about an incident, not much information there. So I found uh, uh, out that uh, many of these um, Jews who protested in public were actually tried uh, in special courts. And we had thought of special courts as kind of political instruments of the Nazis established in 1933 to quell kind of uh, opponents and enemies of the regime. We never thought of them that they actually uh, were also a space where Jews were uh, kind of uh, punished for criticism and public protest. So when I uh, looked at these cases, which are to be found in many of the local archives in Germany, uh, I realized that uh, it really depended very much on the participants in these legal proceedings, the prosecutors, the, uh, the judges, the witnesses. Uh, and in uh, surprisingly, it is not as I had expected and many others would have expect that over time punishment gets harder, um, uh, Jews practically always get kind of punished. Uh, it is actually much more complicated. And sometimes even during the war, like brief or short, shortly before the deportation start, Jews still get acquitted from these kind of special courts, which is in a way counterintuitive if you think about the radicalization of anti-Jewish persecution over time. So it depended very much on the witnesses, if the judges found them credible, the, the layout of the kind of crime, so to speak. Uh, sometimes also on the situation, because I have, for example, found in Hamburg a case where a judge um, uh, on the one hand, is almost uh, is very sympathetic to one Jewish woman who went into a police station and shouted down with Hitler, and he gives her only two weeks of jail time because she acted out of despair. While in other cases, he is much harder, harsher. So it also depended on situation, individual cases. So. Uh, Kind of to conclude this, in a way, we need to think about this legal system as a, a, a kind of a much more complex system where uh, the Nazis still in Germany for a long time kind of obeyed to the, the rules of the system. So it was not as sometimes it is kind of in, uh, expected in the public that it was easy for the Nazis just to kind of if somebody rebelled, to just throw them in uh, kind of into a concentration camp. Um, the Nazis still perceived Germany as a legal kind of state and with all the kind of consequences of this. So they went through lengths having court trials even in, uh, during the war against Jews who did often minor kind of offen offenses. There are many personal stories that you tell in this book. One of them is that of Hertha Rice. Can you describe what befell her? Yeah, so Hertha Rice, uh, she was a uh, 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 kind of young woman, 36 years old. Uh, in 1941, she uh, performed forced labor as many uh, German Jews at the time. And uh, one day she gets arrested because uh, in front of the uh, uh, biggest Berlin courthouse, she uh, exclaimed uh, in front of passersby uh, uh, that uh, she 
or let me rephrase this, she practically scolded Hitler, uh, kind of cursed uh, the, the Nazi government and uh, kind of kind of exclaimed that uh, it only happened to her what, uh, what just happened in court uh, because she is Jewish. And uh, what uh, had happened to her was that a judge uh, kind of um, uh, expelled her from a kind of a small sublet which she had to share with her mother and her son, which was already kind of uh, a, a refuge which she had to move to because she was expelled uh, from her previous home. So uh, she had nowhere to go and was kind of really in despair when she left the courthouse. And that's when she kind of uh, 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 came to this kind of uh, statement uh, cursing the, the, the Nazi government and the persecution of the Jews. So uh, this incident uh, shows that even in 1941, which is kind of several years into the war, uh, it's uh, after eight years of Nazi persecution, uh, this whole kind of uh, policy against the Jews was not stopping individual people like Hertha Rice, neither women or men, uh, to uh, actually protest against the persecution. Another story told in the book is that of Melanie Crone. What happened to her? Yeah, she was actually the woman I just mentioned earlier uh, who went into this police station and uh, uh, scolded Hitler and uh, kind of yelled at the policeman down with Hitler. Um, so uh, her case is interesting also because it shows how also Jews not only kind of protested, disobeyed uh, legislation, but also how when they were kind of denounced or denunciated or when they were arrested, how also uh, they tried to get out of this kind of really uh, kind of a dangerous situation. So in this case, uh, uh, she got help from the Jewish community, um, a lawyer uh, who tried to defend her with the argument that uh, she uh, not only acted out of despair, but that she had uh, in her family a kind of a very uh, depressing situation of kind of some inherited mental illness and referred to a kind of suicide uh, uh, in her family and uh, tried to use this argument to uh, kind of get her out of, uh, out of jail. And this is not the only case uh, where we, where uh, either the uh, defendants themselves or the, uh, or a lawyer try to make this argument, because uh, to minimize a kind of punishment or even to uh, achieve a, a committal. Can you tell the story of Edith Britz? Why is she significant? Yeah, Edith Britz is, uh, I think, uh, important. Uh, I don't know so much about her. What I found was a letter which was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, confiscated by the Gestapo. Um, she writes this letter in uh, at the beginning of the war in Berlin uh, to his, uh, her sister. And in the letter, she describes a situation where uh, in the morning, like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., um, people knock on her door and she describes 
her, her own feelings and her own thinking in a way that she said, uh, I'm at a point where I won't allow anybody to kind of harm me anymore. Uh, I'm kind of uh, fed up. Uh, if somebody wants to come into my apartment and arrest me or do something to me, I will defend myself. I will kind of go crazy. Uh, the actual situation was much more kind of uh, modest. It, it was uh, um, uh, there were policemen who wanted to uh, kind of um, get her radio. Jews had to kind of hand over their radios at the beginning of the war. So they didn't want to arrest her. But what it showed to me, this kind of uh, description of her feelings and how anxious and uh, angry she was, um, that I kind of, in a way, got a glimpse into uh, the thoughts and feelings of other Jews also, which I where I found records, which seem to explain sometimes uh, that um, Jew, how Jews uh, reacted and how Jews responded to the persecution. Uh, and uh, maybe this kind of accumulation of persecution, of uh, anti-Jewish propaganda, let some people at some point to actually act uh, act out, and um, and I think we should not underestimate this this kind of uh, level of anger, uh, anxiety, and repulsion as a motivating factor for some of the actions um, uh, in my book. Who is Hans Oppenheimer? Can you share his story? Yeah, so Hans Oppenheimer is one of the uh, main stories in my book, one of the five stories. So he uh, is uh, in 1940, he was uh, 17 years old. He was uh, growing up in Frankfurt, which was the kind of uh, one of the largest cities in uh, Germany with uh, a large percentage or the largest percentage actually of uh, Jews um, uh, among the city population. And uh, he, when he uh, grew up uh, there, um, he had to leave uh, kind of school and was drafted or recruited for forced labor already as a 16 year old. So he was forced to go to, uh, to labor camps. He was forced to perform labor uh, uh, at the Frankfurt municipality or for the Frankfurt municipality. And at the end of 1940, during the war, when the Allied um, bombers kind of started to uh, drop bombs over uh, Germany, he goes out every night uh, and breaks the curfew for Jews. So there was a curfew in place since the beginning of the war where Jews were forbidden to leave their houses after 8 p.m. at night. He nevertheless left every night and then he does something very interesting. He waits until the Allied bombers kind of cl are closing in. And when uh, the sirens start to haul and the bombers drop their kind of uh, bombs, then he sets off wrong fire alarms to divert the um, Frankfurt firefighters from the actual bombing sites. So he does this uh, various times always under risk to get caught. And then at some point, uh, the police sets a trap and they finally kind of uh, can arrest him. Uh, he is then set on uh, kind of uh, put on trial at the Frankfurt Special Court. And there uh, they try to kind of 
punish him as hard uh, as harsh as they can. Um, but he only admits to uh, merely a dozen of these attempts. Uh, the Gestapo is, uh, kind of suspects that he actually was responsible for more than 40 of these wrong fire alarms, but they can't, couldn't prove it. Um, the, only, the only proof they had was that the series stopped when he was arrested. Uh, so on trial, he was then for like a, a dozen of these attempts and, uh, and uh, ended up uh, uh, being sentenced to three years uh, in uh, a German uh, uh, prison. And uh, even in prison, he uh, is kind of in a way rebellious. He complains about the situation. He uh, is suffering a lot in, as an individual. He is only 18 years old at this point. He was uh, extremely exhausted from the uh, forced labor and the poor kind of nutrition uh, and some illnesses in the uh, in prison kind of uh, led to kind of uh, physical and uh, mental uh, exhaustion, which then uh, while on the one hand he is rebellious, he uh, kind of complains a lot, he writes petitions to the uh, prison warden. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he gets more and more depressed because he also doesn't get really uh, visits and he is very, he's put in isolation from the very beginning, so in isolated confinement. So in the end, he commits uh, or attempts to commit suicide twice uh, uh, in uh, prison and uh, then uh, while he was kind of saved uh, he, uh, later on in 19, at the end of 1942, he is sent as uh, many of the incarcerated Jews um, who uh, were at this time in jail for similar acts of defiance or resistance. Uh, and then is uh, they are all sent on Himmler's order to Auschwitz. Uh, and uh, there he doesn't survive for long. And uh, a few days after he turned 20, he uh, his kind of death is registered at Auschwitz. So it is on the one hand, a very kind of sad and heartbreaking story, but it also showed that uh, uh, kind of a young individual of 17 years uh, really rebelled in remarkable ways against the Nazis uh, and in unsuspected ways. What is your book's contribution to the study of Nazi Germany? So I think the book, on the one hand, uh, it is, uh, uh, as I already mentioned, a reassessment of a Jewish responses uh, in Nazi Germany towards the uh, kind of increasingly radicalized persecution of the Jews. It shows also uh, a lot what I worked earlier on from a different kind of perspective, um, responses of Jews uh, against uh, local restrictions and very kind of diverse and sometimes even contradictory anti-Jewish policies at the local level. Um, so I can kind of show uh, the, how also the local situation shaped um, certain responses uh, from Jews. Uh, I also show in the book that uh, these individual acts of resistance are kind of performed by a wide uh, variety of people, um, equally men as women, young and old, like blue color work uh, and educated uh, kind of doctors, 
So the range of the Jewish resistance, uh, uh, individual resistance is huge. And then on the other hand, if we think about Nazi Germany and the persecution of the Jews, I think I can show um, how much more complex the situation was uh, in Germany, how Jews responded to certain anti-Jewish acts. Um, uh, so what I kind of describe, what one can describe as in ways. So there was not like a steady stream of like rebellion or anti uh, kind of uh, anti-Nazi acts, but it was like always responding to certain actually uh, kind of acts of legislation or violent events, for example, uh, Kristallnacht, right? So there is a spike of anti uh, uh, kind of, of Jewish individual Jewish uh, re uh, resistance, for example, during an event like Kristallnacht, responding to the extraordinary violence. So uh, kind of in total, it is, uh, I can show in the book that uh, there is a much more complex situation uh, situation evolving over time. Um, and uh, the reactions are also kind of reflecting the persecution in a way and the changing persecution. So in the beginning, it's more like uh, on the, uh, the economic field later, it's more the segregation of the Jews. Uh, and in the end, it's kind of forced labor and deportation. So these acts of persecution then kind of, in a way, provoke different also acts of resistance. Speaking of Kristallnacht, what new evidence does your book present about the events surrounding Kristallnacht? What is your book's co contribution or innovation to our knowledge of the history of the Kristallnacht program? Yeah, so as far as I know, um, we we didn't really have accounts uh, of uh, Jews in Germany reacting to Kristallnacht. I mean, when we when you read books about Kristallnacht, there's a lot of talk about, like, let's say, foreign reactions, um, uh, reactions of Jewish organizations abroad. But there's not much of actually almost nothing about how Jews responded to the situation. And what I can show in the book in various different places is that Kristallnacht really provoked um, uh, certain reactions. One of those is that um, Jews spoke up against the violence. That's one reaction in public, uh, mostly kind of uh, on the day after the violence, but sometimes even uh, later, weeks later. So there was uh, kind of uh, public criticism of the violence by individual Jews. But there was also, for example, acts of uh, trying to preserve um, uh, kind of Jewish um, religious objects from synagogues. There were, uh, was uh, the attempt to get back looted uh, goods from Jewish shops or Jewish homes. Uh, and there was also the attempt to physically defend themselves from attacks during Kristallnacht. And so in the book, I tell a story about a Jewish uh, girl, which is in a uh, kind of a retraining camp, agricultural training camp, uh, which was raided by stormtroopers and how she defended herself. Can you tell us about the Kelkheim forced labor camp? 
What does your book reveal about it? So the Kalkheim labor camp, this is, goes back to the story of Hans Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. uh, the 17 year old boy in Frankfurt. And uh, so uh, in his story, uh, he uh, this camp plays a role because he is sent to this camp for several months to perform forced labor. And the camp is interesting because uh, we have uh, pretty good documentation about the origin and the history of this camp, uh, uh, kind of covering mostly the period before Hans Oppenheimer was there. What, the, what we know about the campus, and this comes kind of from my uh, dissertation research on Jewish forced labor outside of concentration camps. So this camp in Kalkheim was one of the very early labor camps which were established for Jews after Kristallnacht, because after Kristallnacht, uh, Jews were excluded practically from the public welfare system. And uh, the first stage of Jewish forced labor consisted of recruiting Jews who received unemployment benefits uh, in the German system. And the Nazis decided not to kind of spend these unemployment benefits without compensation. And this is where forced labor started. The mayor of Kelkheim learned about this new program and he asked the labor officers in Frankfurt or mine, because Kelkheim was uh, kind of uh, close to Frankfurt in Hesse. And he asked the labor officers to send him 20 Jewish men so that he can build a road from Kelkheim to Frankfurt. So the idea was to build a road with cheap labor of Jewish uh, men. Uh, when the men arrived, uh, he, um, first of all, segregated them in the camp. He forbade them to move freely. And I have to say, and to clarify this, this was before even the war started. This was kind of in the spring of 1939. And this was not in Poland, this was in Germany. So uh, he was a very anti-Semitic. He ordered beatings of the Jewish men. Um, he uh, allowed them only to have in their spare time walk in a very kind of confined space at the outskirts of the city. Uh, and interestingly, uh, uh, he in a way involved the whole town into this project. So he uh, kind of gave the contract to a company, construction company, who uh, which was um, destined to uh, almost pay no wages to the laborers. Uh, there was another company who offered, who, uh, which offered regular wages, which she didn't choose. Then uh, they were uh, uh, the camp was established in the ballroom of a local inn, uh, which practically established the camp within the town and in the sight of almost everybody in the town. And then. Uh, a lot of people in the town got involved in this. So the grocery store would deliver the food to the camp. Uh, a, a company, a small factory uh, kind of um, led the bunk beds uh, uh, in this camp to the mayor. Uh, the uh, councilmen inspected the camp uh, every week. Uh, they issued kind of orders that they could not use the sanitary installations in this kind of inn to segregate them from the local population. 
So you have uh, practically a lot of people in the small town, and they were not all kind of members of the Nazi party, involved in this project of uh, Jewish forced labor. And the conditions of the forced, uh, forced labor were uh, extremely hard uh, and led to uh, kind of the suicide of one of the men, uh, of the original 20, uh, 20 men. Several of the men uh, were sent back because they fell ill. So the conditions, even before the war in the small camp, in the small town, were horrible. And this is where then Hans Oppenheimer ended up later in the same camp. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies? What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of the Holocaust? So uh, my book reassesses uh, and revises what we understand uh, about Jewish resistance. Uh, What I uh, do is on the one hand, I changed geography because when we thought about Jewish resistance, we always thought about occupied Poland, the occupied Eastern territories, but never about Germany. Uh, so I think I change uh, geographies. I kind of illuminate the Jewish resistance uh, existed on a kind of a large scale in uh, Germany. And then I also revise uh, and broaden our understanding what Jewish resistance is by including individual acts. And here, uh, with all the evidence I present in this book of hundreds and hundreds of cases, I can show that this was uh, not a rare occurrence, uh, that Jews were not passive, and that we really have to rethink about uh, kind of how Jews responded uh, to the persecution. And I think this is really changing uh, previous kind of uh, understandings in Holocaust history uh, and previous thinking about uh, kind of this misconceived limited amount of uh, uh, acts of resistance. And I make the claim in my book uh, at the end that uh, while I show dozens and dozens and dozens of cases, um, this is just also uh, kind of a small sample because I didn't kind of investigate all of the available archives. And even the archives I went to, there was a lot of uh, material which didn't survive in these archives because of bombings, because of destruction uh, still during the Nazi period of uh, of, uh, of archival records. So uh, we only see, a, uh, or we only get a glimpse into what uh, Jews actually, uh, how Jews responded uh, to the uh, persecution in Nazi Germany. And what I want to do with the book or what I wanted to achieve is really to incorporate uh, this kind of widespread individual Jewish resistance into our narrative uh, of uh, the Holocaust uh, in Germany. And that this is a, this needs to be a substantial part of our narrative. Who are Anna and Benno Neuberger? What can you tell us about their lives and their fates? So Anna and Benno uh, Neuberger, uh, Burger, they were uh, a couple an elderly couple in Munich. Uh, And uh, Benno Neuberger is the main protagonist of one of the chapters in my book. He was a uh, former real estate broker uh, and 
he was one of those um, Jewish entrepreneurs who lost their fortune uh, before the Nazis even came to power because of inflation. So uh, his firm kind of uh, uh, didn't make it uh, through the inflation and uh, he lived on kind of uh, by selling off property, which uh, real estate property, which still was in his possession over the first years of the Nazi period. But then almost nothing was left. Uh, he suffered as a family because his two children, his daughter and his son, left early on for the uh, United States. So they uh, emigrated because they couldn't stand uh, kind of the anti-Jewish policies anymore. So um, the, the couple tried to get out also to the US. The, the children uh, tried to make this happen. But uh, they failed, as so many other children uh, failed to get um, their parents or their relatives out on time. This had to do a lot with the U.S. quota system, where uh, which was limited um, or giving limited uh, amount of numbers to uh, German Jews. So while the uh, Neuburgers had kind of uh, achieved to get numbers, these numbers would have been called late into the war. And when the children offered to uh, get them out to other countries like Cuba, this was a lot to kind of digest for this elderly couple to picture themselves to end up in a on a tropical island with no language knowledge. So um, uh, they kind of hesitated uh, to use these opportunities and that's how they got kind of stuck in uh, Germany. Benno Neuburger, uh, then, uh, when they had no chance to get out anymore, uh, was not only uh, to incarcerated during uh, Kristallnacht as one of the 30,000 Jewish men. He ended up in the concentration camp in Dachau. And ironically, this was the place where, or the town where he was actually stationed as a soldier for the German Reich in the First World War. And then later, uh, he uh, uh, is kind of, uh, he has to take in other families into his own apartment because the German uh, or the Nazis concentrated Jewish uh, kind of uh, um, families into or cramped them into so-called Jewish houses or special apartments. Uh, and when the star was introduced, the yellow, the notorious yellow star, this is where I see this broke practically uh, the la this was the last straw which uh, broke the camel's neck. He's uh, kind of starts to um, rebel. And what he did was he wrote uh, anonymous postcards. Uh, and on these postcards, he glued a kind of uh, uh, Hitler post stamps and then wrote kind of remarks on them. And some of the remarks were like, hail the murderer, or Hitler, the biggest kind of uh, criminal. Uh, but then also sometimes he wrote on them really for prophetic messages like uh, Hitler, uh, the mass murderer of five millions. And this was in 1942. Uh, so... Uh, at a time where the whole extent of the extermination policy was not even fully to be grasped. So he 
uh, made one unfortunate mistake. Uh, one of the postcards he sent out was from his former real estate firm, and he overlooked that there was a stamp on it. And this is how the Gestapo got a hold of him, and they arrested him. And uh, when he was arrested, uh, he was uh, tried, uh, brought to Berlin from Munich, and he was tried at the infamous uh, German People's Court uh, as a kind of uh, a political and racial enemy, uh, and he was tried for treason there. And he was tried for treason because on one of the postcards, he uh, wrote kind of Hitler is the new God, and then he um, uh, kind of uh, marked his birth year and the year 1943. And this was interpreted by the Gestapo that he kind of called for the murder of Hitler or the assassination of Hitler in 1943. So he was tried and on the stage in the People's Court, uh, which was the most notorious uh, kind of uh, stage in Nazi Germany, he still defended himself when he was asked why he would kind of send out these postcards. He said, I was kind of fed up. I was uh, angry about Hitler because in his speeches, he called for the extermination of the Jewish people. So even on the stage, he was not kind of backing down, uh, uh, shying away, trying to kind of get out of the situation, and uh, which was extremely courageous uh, for this elderly man. And uh, unfortunately, this also led to his uh, demise because the People's Court, uh, People's Court found him guilty for treason, and um, they uh, gave him the capital punishment, and he was uh, decapitated um, in the fall of 1942 in, in the Berlin prison. Who was Henriette Schaeffer? What befell her? So Henriette Schaeffer was a, a Jewish woman uh, living in a mixed, marriages, mixed marriage in Frankfurt, and she was one of the people who spoke out uh, against the violence on Kristallnacht. So the next day or the, the day after the violence happened in Frankfurt, uh, where you had uh, kind of, as in many German towns, uh, attacks on synagogues, on shops and Jewish homes, she went into uh, the store uh, which uh, was a grocery store in uh, the uh, uh, ground uh, at the ground floor of her apartment house, and asked the owner what uh, she would think about uh, what happened last night. Um, and the owner kind of said, uh, along the kind of propaganda lines of the Nazis. Yeah, this was the outrage of the German people because of the assassination of the German diplomat by this uh, uh, Jewish boy in Paris. And then Henriette Schaefer responded, uh, exclaiming, this was not kind of the, the people, this was the government, this was kind of uh, the bandit Hitler. And so she started to scold Hitler and make... Uh, the Hitler uh, Nazi government responsible for the violence. Uh, and she is then uh, kind of gets arrested because she is denunciated and 
uh, has to go on trial um, uh, and gets punished for kind of, in a way, criticizing the violence and scolding Hitler. Can you tell us about Margareta and David Bornstein? What befell them? Yeah, so uh, David Bornstein, uh, Bornstein was uh, uh, living in Hamburg. And uh, as Henriette Schäfer, this is one of the main stories of the book, one of the chapters of the book. Um, so he um, lived in Hamburg. He uh, had moved there in the 1920s. He had a small kind of business um, and uh, he was selling kind of uh, brushes and, and other kind of uh, uh, household goods. And uh, he had married uh, uh, in kind of a woman who was slightly older than him. They fell in love, uh, uh, kind of crazy, like crazy. And so uh, in 1936, um, so this was way before the war, um, he, on a warm summer day, he um, uh, went with his wife to uh, kind of a bus station, bus terminal at the outskirts of Hamburg, because his wife wanted to visit his uh, parents-in-law. He uh, was just accompanying her uh, to the bus. First, they were sitting in the bus uh, until waiting for the departure. And then when the departure was uh, kind of uh, the time was uh, approaching, he went out and uh, talked to his wife uh, through the window. And while doing this, he uh, used his walking stick, his cane, to... Uh, kind of scratching the swastika logo on this public bus. Um, he was kind of spotted by a nearby uh, a conductor from a different bus who was also waiting for his departure and was confront confronted immediately that he was trying to destroy the swastika on his bus. He tried to defend himself and trying uh, to say, no, I didn't do this. And this was kind of, I didn't do this on purpose. But nevertheless, he is then um, kind of arrested and put on trial for destroying uh, this uh, the swastika on this public bus. And uh, the uh, this story stands for uh, other kind of uh, incidences where Jews try to kind of uh, destroy um, uh, signs of anti-Jewish propaganda, ripping down, for example, propaganda posters or destroying Nazi flags. David Bornstein then uh, uh, receives a punishment of several uh, months. He went uh, to jail. He gets out of jail. Uh, uh, after a time, he is released uh, after serving his sentence. And then he is uh, uh, incarcerated as many Jews uh, or Jewish men, I have to say, who actually were earlier punished uh, because they were, for example, disobeying to Nazi legislation or protesting in public. Um, uh, and he was um, incarcerated in a concentration camp in June 1938, as many of these other men too, um, within a raid or as a result of a raid against so-called asocial Jews. And we previously thought uh, only Jews with 
kind of minor criminal records were brought into these concentration camps sometimes when they were kind of arrested for drunk driving or these kind of things. But we never thought that also uh, Jews went to concentration camps uh, at this time who had kind of criticized the regime earlier on. Fortunately, he uh, is released uh, from concentration from the concentration camp after uh, a few months, and this is then when he immediately leaves the country for uh, uh, kind of Palestine and uh, with his wife and also the small daughter, which was kind of born in between uh, uh, when he was. Uh, uh, kind of on trial. Did males and females engage in different forms of resistance? If no, why not? If yes, how so? So I would say there are two uh, responses to this question. On the one hand, uh, I found really interesting that uh, I can't really um, kind of extract patterns of behavior uh, depending on, for example, gender, age, socialization. So I found an equal amount of cases where women in various ways kind of resisted uh, uh, against uh, the persecution. Uh, the second answer is, while we have an equal, equal amount of individual acts of resistance uh, by women, there are some minor differences in what kind of, what forms of resistance uh, women uh, uh, kind of used in comparison to men. So the only slight difference I see is there are less women, let's say, engaged in physical self-defense, but it doesn't mean that there were no women. And then there are maybe slightly more women speaking up against the persecution in public than men. And there are various reasons for this. So, for example, men were more engaged, uh, kind of women were more in uh, on the streets because men were e either arrested or they were kind of engaged in work. So there are also reasons for this. So, as I said, in general, there are no differences, uh, but in some forms, there are, we can see some uh, uh, kind of uh, different approaches. Can you explain the photograph that is on page 42 in your book. Although our listeners won't be able to see it, can you elaborate on what is depicted in that photo? So are you referring to the burning of the synagogue there? Yes. So this is a, pic, a picture uh, of uh, uh, kind of taken during Kristallnacht uh, and it uh, shows the uh, burning of the synagogue uh, in Frankfurt, or one of the synagogues, I have to say, uh, uh, which was a uh, really big and kind of uh, impressive uh, building uh, at uh, uh, Berneplatz. And uh, what, one's, what one can see is, on the one hand, we see the, uh, the uh, burning building kind of engulfed in flames. But then we see also a lot of uh, people uh, who are kind of looking at the burning building. And uh, some are in uniform, but most of them are civilians. Uh, and uh, a quite, quite a big number of onlookers here. 
And I think what is interesting, which I don't uh, kind of talk about so much in the book, is um, that we usually had the impression, this comes also from kind of foreign press uh, kind of uh, articles about the Kristallnacht, about the program, that uh, a lot of the people in Germany kind of witnessed, uh, were onlookers, but were quiet and kind of where it was not really clear if they appreciated or, or kind of were disgusted by the violence and the burning synagogues. What I know from police records, um, for example, in Berlin, is that um, when we see these photos uh, 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 and these people, um, mostly non-Jewish people, on these uh, um, uh, as onlookers, we have to be aware that they talked. Uh, which uh, kind of in the police records in Berlin, there were quite a few people uh, arrested um, during Kristallnacht for criticizing the persecution. And they were non-Jewish uh, kind of onlookers and uh, kind of passers-by. So that's an interesting aspect we also need to uh, kind of investigate more in the future. Why do misconceptions of Jewish passivity during the Holocaust exist and persist? How does your book address these misconceptions? Yeah, I think the traditional focus uh, uh, on the armed and group resistance in a way led uh, people to believe that since there were only a few kind of acts of resistance, so that uh, it looked like, yeah, these were rare occurrences, exceptions of the rule. Um, however, today we know that, first of all, there were also more instances of armed resistance, more uprisings. Uh, there was much more also other forms of resistance in Eastern Europe. But still this idea uh, of armed resistance let people believe this is rare uh, and exceptional. And also it led people to believe you need kind of special people to commit these acts of resistance. They need to be extra courageous. Uh, so there's a lot what goes into the th kind of thinking, and my book kind of tries to really reverse the thinking uh, into saying acts of resistance were kind of uh, uh, committed by a ton of different Jews on an individual basis. Uh, and in a way, uh, it shows us that there is not a specific, like, characteristic uh, ascribed to these people, uh, which explains why they are resistors. Um, resistors are practically can be everybody. Uh, and I showed this in the book, the, 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 the Jewish woman, men, men and women are often so different and uh, they act also in very different ways. So um, to understand resistance as a widespread reaction towards the persecution, I think, is the contribution of this book. What does your book teach us about courage? Yeah, I think this is uh, kind of uh, picking up on the, uh, my last response. What I kind of see in this book is um, you don't need to uh, kind of look for special kind of characteristics in people. Because often, for example, students ask question, I mean, or, or kind of doubt themselves also. And if I would be in the situation, I probably could never do this. Uh, it took a lot of courage to do this for these people to act this way. But uh, what my research shows is uh, uh, 
there is no certain kind of specific character trait which enables these people to do what they did. Um, but it is really more up to the situation, the individual kind of uh, conditions, uh, which uh, in a way make these people uh, resist. And what I think at the end of the book, I'm uh, saying that uh, while I focus so much on the individual story and the individual person and try to make clear that uh, if anybody of those could resist, anybody in any circumstances uh, can resist if these uh, kind of Jews under these really horrible circumstances and uh, the per Nazi persecution could uh, rebel, then everybody in any circumstances uh, is able to do this. But what I also try to then to open up as a new line of inquiry is um, individuals never act alone. They have always kind of family around them. They have friends. Uh, and I think the next step in our uh, research needs to be to think about, so how what kind of uh, play the people closest around them for a role? What is uh, their kind of contribution? Um, because we know from like studies in sociology that uh, your personal relationship also influence your attitudes, your behavior, your actions. And so how much influence has, let's say, the wife of um, uh, 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 David Bornstein on him when he scratches this logo. Is she confirming what he's doing? Is she kind of appreciating what he's doing or not? So these questions uh, needs to be raised in the future. Sometimes they acted also without the knowledge of their, their close one, closest ones, like uh, Benno Neuburger, who is kind of uh, acting deliberately hiding what he's doing from his wife because he expected that she might not kind of in a way uh, be um, in favor of what he's doing because it is really putting the family uh, and himself uh, really uh, at risk, which then also turned out to be true in the end. So I think um, to look into these relationships, how they can kind of uh, in a way strengthen your motivation or but also kind of uh in a way uh speaking up against potential acts of resistance in what ways does your book redefine disobedience can you comment on how your book reinterprets the sociology and psychology of disobedience yeah so what i try to do in the book is to uh in a way to show that uh under these extreme circumstances of an, uh, kind of a dictatorship, um, I think it is important to acknowledge uh, that uh, judging from today what kind of resistance is, is in a way uh, not really doing justice what people experienced at the time and what they did. So I make the claim in the book that uh, uh, it's not up to up actually to define what resistance is. It's also not up to the survivors uh, what their understanding is um, of resistance. Because, for example, 
I worked also with a lot of uh, survivor testimonies, interviews from the Shaw Foundation. In, in many of these interviews, survivors also only see like the partisans or the ghetto uprisings as the actual resistance. Although they sometimes tell story about their own uh, individual kind of acts of resistance, but they don't acknowledge that this was really resistance. So I think uh, the this is important to, uh, in a way, to reassess uh, 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 these uh, uh, kind of misunderstanding. But can you repeat the question because I lost a little bit to my train of thought sure, here. Yeah, like how do you, how do you in your book reinterpret disobedience, uh -oh. and what does your book teach us about the psychology of disobedience, of the sociology of disobedience? Yeah, so uh, to follow up, there are uh, two also uh, different answers to this question. One is kind of to proceed with the line that uh, we don't really uh, uh, define what resistance is or the survivors define what resistance is. But uh, I make the claim that uh, the perpetrators actually define what resistance is because what they perceive as dangerous that's what they kind of persecute and what uh, uh, that's what they go after. And so sometimes very small acts, very small deeds can be perceived by them as fundamentally challenging their regime. And so, for example, I have these stories in my book when for ex um, things like not wearing the star, which seems from today's standpoint, maybe cavalier, uh, at the time was fiercely kind of persecuted by the Gestapo. The people went to jail for not wearing the star because this was perceived as a challenge of the regime. So on the one hand, you have these uh, that the perpetrators define what resistance is. Uh, then to think about the psychology of resistance here is um, under these kind of oppressive circumstances, the fierce racism uh, and persecution, many of these small acts seem sometimes from today's standpoint of view in an open society as kind of not really kind of uh, changing the needle or doing anything big. But at the time, under these circumstances, these uh, men and women kind of risk often their lives with these small acts of resistance. If they spoke up in public against certain anti-Jewish legislations, uh, if they kind of defended themselves physically. So these kind of acts were uh, in a way conscious acts. So they knew what they would uh, get themselves into. And even if today in a democratic society, sometimes we think, yeah, what does it matter uh, when somebody writes a letter, for example, criticizing the regime? At the time, this was extremely risky. And just to make a connection to today, sometimes it is really unfathomable for us uh, that kind of small acts have these repercussions. Think about the situation. I don't know if you saw this photograph of this woman in Russia uh, which uh, who sat on a square with a blank sheet of paper, right? And this woman with a blank sheet of paper was arrested because the regime in Russia perceives this as a dangerous act. And rightly, they assume this is a protest of the war. 
but there was nothing written on this paper. It was just a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. So what I want to say is this from today's standpoint, sometimes or in a democratic society, we can't really fathom the uh, extent and uh, uh, um, what repercussions have to be taken into account when you do very small acts of resistance. Who is Max Mannheimer? Why is he noteworthy? So I uh, talk about Max Mannheimer in the beginning of my book because uh, he is... Uh, he, I found his uh, entry in his diary where he describes uh, uh, kind of an uh, evening um, doing um, his first labor stint in a, where he lived in a camp in Bohemia. And he uh, writes in his diary that um, one evening he goes to a public park, which was at the time forbidden uh, for Jews. Uh, he also goes after dark, which kind of breaks the curfew for Jews. And then he um, uh, actually finds several kind of signs with kind of prohibition for Jews. And he rips them out uh, and throws them into a creek and into bushes. And then interestingly, the, uh, the entry uh, in this diary then says the next day, he went back and the signs were all kind of reestablished there. They were uh, kind of reappeared. And then he kind of, in a way, says, yeah, so uh, the second time I didn't rip them out uh, because I'm just not a hero. And so, and I use this to uh, really demonstrate this, uh, that even some of the Jews uh, didn't perceive what they did as kind of heroism or anything. But from our standpoint, when I kind of see this, uh, he was co so courageous to go actually, not only to rip out all these signs uh, forbidden for Jews, but then go back the next day, break again the curfew, go into the park, which was forbidden for Jews, and check on these signs, right? So he is actually kind of breaking several of these anti-Jewish regulations again, so for me, this is a, uh, a really interesting example of showing uh, actually this kind of daily heroism of these uh, Jewish men and women. Who is Daisy Gronowski? Can you tell us her story? Yeah, so uh, Daisy Gronowski uh, is uh, uh, also a protagonist of one of the five chapters and uh, her uh, story is uh, representative for uh, attempts to physically resist um, anti-Jewish attacks. And um, so her story is she is uh, uh, 16 years old uh, and lives in Berlin and is part of the uh, Zionist youth movement, Hashemur Hassoir, and uh, is uh, kind of uh, in a way willing to leave Germany um, to emigrate to Palestine. And uh, that's why she joined uh, one of the agricultural training camps, which prepared uh, like young adults and teenagers to uh, kind of uh, emigrate to Palestine and then uh, kind of have some skills in agriculture to uh, uh, kind of make a new life in Palestine. She uh, is uh, in this 
small training camp in Western Germany between Cologne and Bonn. And uh, when uh, the November program happened, Kristallnacht, and the stormtroopers raid uh, the camp. And first they start to beat up all the boys. And then uh, when uh, kind of they are already bleeding and they are beat up, uh, beaten up, they also start to beat up the young girls. And uh, in her testimony for the Shaw Foundation, uh, Daisy Gudanovsky tells uh, this kind of, uh, tells us about this incident. And she says, um, so for her, this was kind of the end of the line. She decided not to kind of, to obey to the stormtroopers and uh, to resist. And so when uh, it was her kind of task uh, uh, to be beaten up, there was a young stormtrooper who was also not much older than her, like 18. Uh, he was also not as big as she described him. And he approached her to trying to beat her up. And she, he had uh, also a kind of a knife. He holds a knife in his hand. And uh, interestingly, uh, Daisy Grunowski had some kind of self-defense training in this uh, in Berlin, back in Berlin, in this Hashomer Hatzair group. And so she uses a jiu-jitsu jiu -jitsu trick um, to defend herself. And she twists the knife out of his hand and uh, puts kind of her stom uh, head into his stomach. He is so surprised that he let the knife go. And she kind of stabs him. And so he she uh, uh, he is unconscious, uh, falls down. And with the help of some friends, she kind of hides his uh, body uh, behind the sofa. And this uh, enables her to escape the camp with a few friends. And so this is one of the very surprising stories I found where uh, Jewish young woman or young, young man defended themselves physically against a kind of physical attacks. How does your book contribute to the historiography of German Jewry? Um, so in, I think in the, um, in the German Jewish historiography, uh, there's a lot of kind of focus on Jewish organizations, um, certain, let's say Jews in certain regions, um, but it is always also a little bit separated from, let's say, the Nazi society. And what I think my book does is really to bring, on the one hand, the German society uh, together with the Jewish history in this regard. And so the responses of the Jews towards the oppression uh, and not to separate these two histories. What suggestions do you have to readers of this book? who might engage in further research based on your findings. What are some lacunae that you would like to see addressed by future students and scholars? So I think there are three. One is that I uh, was a one-man enterprise, so I couldn't go to all the archives. So there are a lot of archives still to be investigated. Big cities like Hanover and uh, uh, kind of uh, Wroclaw, uh, uh, the former Breslau, they are not really researched yet. So I think to do similar research what I did in uh, in, uh, in local archives uh, is one uh, part. The second part is to, which I talked a little bit uh, earlier about, is to 
think about the relationships, the personal relationships, and how did this influence uh, the individual acts of resistance? So friends, neighbors, workmates, uh, and family. And then the last point is um, the to think about individual resistance also in other territories. That means in my book, I focus on Germany and Austria. Uh, in a former book, I did a little bit of uh, preliminary research on uh, Bohemia, Moravia, but I think we need to extend this kind of approach to look into individual resistance also to investigate France, the Netherlands, uh, and also even Poland. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you're working on now? What are you working on next as your current research? Yeah, so my current research is also trying to revise uh, previous understandings. And uh, the next book will be on the destruction of and uh, violence in Jewish homes during Kristallnacht. So preliminary research uh, showed me that uh, the vandalism, destruction of furniture and uh, beatings, murder and sexual violence during Kristallnacht happened throughout Germany in Jewish homes. That means rental apartments as well as private homes. And um, my kind of current estimate is that uh, we have to think about more than 10,000 homes destroyed. That's a huge number. We never had kind of really on our kind of in our perspective when we thought about Kristallnacht because the main focus was always the burning synagogues, the destroyed shops. While you can find dimensioning of vandalism in homes in many books, there was never an attempt to really systematize to investigate this. And uh, moreover, not only to investigate the violence in the homes, the destruction, but also what impact this had on the Jewish families. And uh, what I found is that there was a huge homelessness crisis after Kristallnacht. We never really talked about. Uh, families had to move to relatives in other cities. They were sometimes harbored by Jewish community leadership. So there was there's a whole kind of world we didn't really think about uh, um, which is new when uh, when we talk about Kristallnacht. So this will be my next book. Amazing. Um, I, I wish you the best of luck with that project. And I also would like to stress how grateful, blessed, and thankful I feel for your time in dialogue today. I can hardly thank you enough for everything that I've learned from you for everything that you shared and for the eloquence and erudition that you offered to me and to our listeners during the course of today's conversation. No, uh, I have to thank because I'm uh, really thankful uh, that I could kind of talk a little bit about my book. I hope uh, this creates some interest and uh, really also uh, change kind of the public understanding what uh, Jewish resistance is. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. I can hardly thank you enough. Thank you. Okay. To, to our listeners, today I have been in dialogue with Wolf Gruner. We have been discussing his new book, Resisters, How Ordinary Jews Fought Persecution in Hitler's Germany, published in New Haven by Yale University Press 2023. Wolf is Professor of History and Chappelle Guerin Chair in Jewish Studies at USC, University of Southern California.
He is also the founding director of the Uni University of Southern California, USC Dornsief Center for Advanced Genocide Research. This has been New Books in Jewish Studies. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, conveying my utmost gratitude to Wolf for his thoughtfulness and his wisdom as shared with us today. Thank you.